Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, October the 24th, 2022. Uh, we're doing history today, history lessons um, in association with the Cundhill History Prize, one of the world's leading prizes for the best history books of the year. And uh, the guys at Cundhill, it's associated, um, it's a Canadian prize. Um, uh, and they're down to three finalists. Um, the winner will be announced on December the 1st. So it's very exciting. One of the books is Cuba and American History by uh, Ada Ferrer, professor at NYU. Uh, professor Ferrer was actually on the show a few months ago in June talking about uh, the peculiar Cuban-American relationship. The second of the books is All She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sachs, a Black Family Keepsake by Tia Miles. I hope we'll get Professor Miles on the show as well at some point before December the 1st. And the third is uh, a book by my guest today. Uh, Vladislav M. Zubok is the author of Collapse, The Fall of the Soviet Union, a real history book for um, real historical times. And I'm thrilled that um, uh, Professor Zubok, uh, Vladislav, but not Vladimir, is joining us from his home in Brighton in the south of England. Uh, Vladislav, this is real history, isn't it? I mean, all books uh, are historical. I mean, all books about history are, I guess, in a sense, history. But your book is big history, a big subject, collapse, the fall of the Soviet Union. This is not a minor event. Is that fair? Well, it's uh, almost too big to, f to fail. Uh, <laughs> you know, the Soviet Union, of course, failed. But uh, when I undertook this task, um, I asked myself, can I do it? Uh, and I said, sure, someone should do it because all the books and that I read and uh, tried to use in my courses on the Soviet history did not uh, live up to my expectations. And I thought, oh my goodness, someone should write a big, big book explaining why it all happened. Uh, so this is what I've done. Well, you also have a book, The Soviet Union in the Cold War from Stalin to Gorbachev, A Failed Empire. So the issue of failure is one that you've uh, addressed before. In terms of the grand sweep of things, do you think the Soviet Union was a failure? Well, it definitely was. And the way it failed, uh, it was, of course, uh, utterly unexpected by anyone. And later people proclaimed it was inevitable and why they did it. And by, you know, people, I mean, you know, all the scholars, uh, historians, uh, journalists, um, when they said it, they meant that the Soviet Union had so many structural flaws. It was a society, the economy, the state that were so much unlike, let's say, the collective West. Uh, it was not democracy. It was, you know, the party state. The economy was run by so-called plan, was centralized, and they uh, destroyed the market a long time ago. Uh, not entirely, but uh, they tried to do it. Um, and so on and so forth. So it, for many decades, the Soviet Union was a, an epitome of anti-West. 
anti-democracy, anti-capitalism. Um, and this is definitely, this came to an end suddenly, but when you think, uh, you know, uh, on a, a measure of, from total success to total failure, I would say it was uh, almost a total failure. Almost because when I wrote this book, I did not subscribe to the idea of inevitable collapse. Actually, we can talk about it later, but I found many, many reasons and many causes for continuation resilience of the Soviet Union. Some of them I didn't expect to find myself because this is part of my life. I lived for 30 years in the Soviet Union. First, I thought it was a great country. Then I began to have some doubts as a student. Then I became highly critical of the system, the party, and so on and so forth. And uh, as a historian, I had to grapple with all those zoobox of the past and decide you know, where I should put myself, place myself as a historian um, in, in this story. And I decided I would follow the evidence and I always would ask the question, could it have happened in a different way? And on every page, I asked myself the question of this nature. And uh, so the, the work turned out to be more like a history with many possibilities, with many contingencies, but definitely not something overdetermined. Yeah, I want to focus, of course, on, on the collapse. But let me, I don't want to sound like Vladimir Putin, but he, 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 he suggests famously or suggested famously uh, that the Soviet collapse was a tragedy, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. He said it was mostly a failure. Uh, and again, I don't want to sound like a Soviet nostalgist, but firstly, it was a remarkable success that no one would have imagined in 1922 that it would have lasted so long. It was a remarkable hotspur on the part of, of Lenin to create this thing and, and make it last. And secondly, didn't it create a degree of equality, uh, Vladislav, that got destroyed in, in the post-Soviet age? Isn't that its greatest achievement, as well as, of course, defeating Hitler? Well, the system, of course, uh, and sustained a huge blow in 1941 when Hitler attacked. And uh, economy and people uh, recovered remarkably with huge casualties, no doubt. But when I teach it to students, I always say, you know, basically the Soviet Union and the Soviet army uh, were very near collapse in 1941 and 42, but they uh, sort of uh, rebounced, uh, recouped, and uh, uh, scored a, a, a remarkable victory, of course, together with, uh, with the allies, with, uh, with the British Empire and the United States. So from that on, uh, the system also turned out to be remarkably effective uh, in, um, in the business of recovery after the war. Uh, losing 27 million people, losing much of the infrastructure on the European part of the country was a big, big deal. Uh, and even for other countries that were integrated into the West, for, such as West Germany, it was not easy to... Uh, to come back from that. But the Soviet Union uh, did it uh, in, uh, so successfully that in the eyes of the main enemy, the United States, it became an, a superpower by the end of the 50s. And at some point, the CIA was re really concerned that the Soviet Union would catch up and su surpass uh, the United States. Well, uh, the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev took it a little bit too, too far uh, in his boasting and his propaganda. But some serious people in the West also believed that it was 
possible. So what happened later on, particularly um, in the 70s and the 80s, is a matter of uh, discussion and debate. Um, the growing um, uh, malaise, uh, loss of dynamism, uh, growth of disillusionment by the Soviet population, all that sort of created a, a pretty worrying picture by the time uh, Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in 1985. Yet no one, no one, I stress, expected such a quick demise and such a thorough collapse merely six years later after Gorbachev uh, assumed uh, the leadership mantle. I want to talk about Gorbachev next, but what about the achievement of institutional achievement of building the Communist Party of the Soviet Union? Of course, it was anything but a democracy. But how sophisticated was the CPSU in governing this huge empire that extended all the way from the Polish border and the Finnish border to uh, to, to uh, East Asia. Well, as you said in the beginning, it was an act of uh, chutzpah, incredible act of uh, improvisation. Uh, um, I would say the Bolsheviks were nimble, diverse, reacted to contingencies, uh, dealt with many, many enemies and many, many challenges. Uh, with remarkable uh, energy and, and, of course, ruthlessness, as we know. But um, they prevailed. They prevailed. Um, but then, particularly after Stalin, after the self-destruction of the party, you know, many historians, uh, of course, uh, would say and confirm that Stalin killed uh, many more communists than anyone else, including Hitler, um, during the Great Purges in the 30s. Um, so after that, the party's character changed. Uh, it was more like um, it was no longer a, 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 an organization where a lot of improvisation and discussion was possible. Um, it was essentially a machine uh, following uh, one leader, one set of uh, instructions. Uh, and uh, this made the party vulnerable to change. And uh, during the 70s, this change became quite palpable. The world that uh, used to be industrialized and uh, where the, the production of steel and production of machinery tanks were important suddenly began to be, began to change into a post-industrial world. And uh, famously, computers appeared, the internet appeared. And the Bolshevik Party by that time was the Soviet Communist Party, a very different organization, where uh, people were not accustomed to discuss it. They still could talk about about it in in, in kitchen, in their kitchens to someone they knew intimately. But the, the discussion was not the strongest part of the Communist Party culture by the time. So when Gorbachev came, he realized that hey, we need to restore it, um, you know, restore that old spirit that had once he believed um, could move mountains, you know, both in terms of the party members should become uh, like all Bolsheviks, uh, motivated, uh, enthusiastic, encouraged, and also in the sense that, you know, the party should debate, not simply wait for the leader to tell the party what mm -hmm. to do. So it was going back in a way, Vladislav, to original Bolshevik principles, or certainly the, the old debate within the Bolshevik party about centralization and democracy and so forth. Your book comes with a rather sad photo of the great Gorbachev on the front, collapse, the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, Gorbachev, of course, was much mourned when he just died in the West, less so 
um, in Russia, in, post, in the post-Soviet Union. To what extent can we blame the collapse of the Soviet Union on Gorbachev himself? Did he misunderstand this grand sweep of history? Was he perhaps seduced by uh, Western propagandists, by, uh, by, by, by the ideology of the Cold War? No, I don't think he was seduced by anything coming from the West. He was probably the first so Soviet leader who was interested very much in what they think and tell in the West. He loved talking to, to Western statesmen. He, he argued with Margaret Thatcher, as we know, you know with Reagan, with uh, Western European socialists like Mitterrand. But I think uh, he remained fundamentally a reform-minded uh, communist, uh, socialist. He kept reading and rereading Lenin in search of clues and he kept looking for some kind of magical levers to turn what he saw was uh, an inert mass and very cynical, very disillusioned country with pretty much careerist and corrupt communist party into something that could remind even remotely of the Bolshevik party in the revolutionary country that he imagined had existed back in 1920s. And by doing it, I think he uh, entered the minefield. He sort of uh, thought, this is me, you know, he, this is why he liked Lenin, the role of incredible personality with this amazing clairvoyance and perspicaciousness about the future. And he imagined himself to be, you know, like Lenin, um, you know, le leading the inert mass into some un uncharted waters. But then when... Did he, I um, how does he compare with, with the great man, with Lenin? Do you think? How did he compare? I didn't. I think the country was different. The country under Lenin was in the midst of the greatest social revolution in uh, human history, perhaps. You know, comparing it, I don't know what to compare it with. The French Revolution, perhaps. Um, but when Gorbachev uh, assumed power, the country was basically accustomed to uh, Stasis, uh, people. Uh, wanted stability. They were accustomed to stability. They wanted better consumer goods. They wanted uh, Western sausages, Western McDonald's, whatnot. Uh, they did not want to participate in, 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 in another social upheaval of any sort. And they quickly realized that Gorbachev did not have a clue, actually. Lenin at least had, a, you know, steered the country with the iron hand and more or less clear slogans, although utopian, of course, but clear slogans, Gorbachev kept uh, imitating Lenin and he kept changing tack. And ultimately, he just lost track of what was going on. And people began to wonder, does the captain know where he's taking us? And all of a sudden, in 1989, uh, Gorbachev sort of created those representative institutions and essentially told those people elected to those institutions, now we have to debate what to do. Well, basically, as if he's saying, I don't know myself uh, where to go, you should debate. We should decide the on the course collectively, like the Bolsheviks allegedly had done in the past. And, and, yeah, and of course, Lenin's great contribution to history is his understanding of power. If anyone's been reading Lenin these days, it's Xi Jinping, or indeed some of the people within the Republican Party of the United States. Did Gorbachev 
misunderstand the idea of power? What was his, did, was it just a blind spot for him? Did he take it so much for granted because he lived in a one party state that he never gave a great deal of thought to the idea of power? Power is something that you need to learn how to exercise. And uh, Gorbachev uh, had an incredibly successful career because largely he was lucky to meet key individuals that elevated him. And uh, the key, the most, the key, the most key mentor of Gorbachev was Yuri Andropov, who yeah. was the, for, for for years the KGB chief and late, you know, basically. And, and conveniently enough, died immediately so that, that Gorbachev could come to power, right? Uh, well, my point is that Gorbachev at no stage had to basically scramble for power right. or you know, claw for power, you know, kick someone hard in a struggle for power. So he just basically was steered into power at in a situation. Uh, don't, don't don't let's not talk about the current situation in the UK, but you know, someone that two people before them who died very soon. And the, the pre, his immediate predecessor was just a, a, a decrepit wreck. So uh, he was kind of whiffed into the highest position of power by, by this consensus. He didn't have to, uh, to kill anyone or even, you know, uh, he demoted later a couple of people uh, in a pretty uh, prompt way. But uh, when uh, someone uh, came to him, his advisors came to him later on and said, well, listen, this guy, Boris Yeltsin, he's dangerous. He's, he will never, you know, forgive you for what you've done to him. And by that time, you know, Gorbachev dismissed him from the Politburo. We should get rid of him, basically, to send him to Africa as an ambassador. I don't know, Burkina Faso, whatever. Um, and Gorbachev said, no, no, this is not my way. You're taking me for, for some, somebody else. I, mean, I would never do it. So that, in this way, he continued to wait and procrastinate until Yeltsin uh, capitalized enough on his mistakes to become essentially a, the most popular leader among the Russians. I want to come to, to, to Yeltsin in a minute. Um, but do you think, uh, I don't know if you saw the movie um, The Death of Stalin, a wonderful British surreal film about Stalin's death right. and the fear of all the men around him. Do you think the Soviet Union ever recovered from the death of Stalin or from Stalinism, that the history of the Soviet Union after 1953 was really the history, if not of the post-Soviet Union, certainly of, of post-Stalinism, and they never really figured out how to get beyond Stalinism. No, I don't think it was like uh, all the way down from, from the moment Stalin died. You can then uh, go even further and say it was all the way down from 1917 when Bolshevik seized power. That would be ridiculous, but then some people think so. Um, I think uh, at the moment when Stalin died, the country was was exhausted. Again, it was in the process of uh, very difficult recovery, replenishing the dead. You know, 27 million people who were gone uh, died prematurely during the war. Uh, but, you know, that was immense uh, optimism in the air. And Gorbachev inherited it, actually. He belonged to that generation. Actually, my parents belonged also to this generation of first generation professionals, for instance, who became engineers, uh, teachers, uh, physicians, um, I mean, scientists, whatnot. Uh, painters, musicians, uh, and that was the country on the rise, definitely. And everybody thought that during the 60s, up to a certain moment in the early 70s, the country remained dynamic and optimistic. 
and then it began to change. So Gorbachev, uh, uh, unlike many, many people in Moscow who changed from optimism to pessimism, he remained optimistic because essentially he, he, he continued to live in the provinces and uh, have this you know, belated reaction to, to the change of mood. Uh, in the country. So I don't think that the Soviet Union never recovered. It recovered amazingly well uh, from, uh, from the demographic uh, catastrophe of the war. It recovered economically, even the Soviet economy deserves separate discussion, but it was not as, uh, as you know, well, listen, we have to basically choose one of the two lines. Either the Soviet Union never recovered from uh, uh, Stalin and the war, and then ask ourselves a question. Why does the United States and the entire West was so concerned about this Soviet Union? So it was a fake superpower. Maybe the American industrial com military industrial complex invented the Soviet threat. You know, I, I think it was uh, a real threat with real potential with the millions of people still uh, thinking that uh, it could be a viable model uh, alternative to capitalism. But at some point, uh, this momentum was gone and people began to have doubts and so on and so forth. And it was at this moment that Gorbachev assumed leadership. I mentioned the Ada Farah book in American history, Cuba in American history. I guess someone with a bit of cheek could write um, a book, a history book of, of the Soviet Union and call it an American history. As you know, the Americans were obsessed, especially after the Second World War, with the Soviet Union as a threat, maybe it was invented. Right. You note in the book that ultimately the collapse of the Soviet Union was an internal Soviet affair, but that the Americans have a degree of responsibility. The American president at the time, George H.W. Bush, was seen as managing the collapse of the Soviet Union reasonably successfully as a historian, uh, Vladislav. What, what's What's the scorecard on uh, on on the elder Bush? Did he do a good job? He did very good job. In fact, uh, in terms of foreign policy and manage, managing the Soviet affairs, it was probably the best administration ever uh, during the Cold War. But of course, you know they had the opponent with extremely you know with already weak cards. Uh, the opponent that wanted actually to to, to become a partner. So all the winds blowed in the, in the right direction, and all all that the Bush administration had to do uh, was basically to encourage Gorbachev to pat him on the back and encourage him to continue along this course. And he did it extremely well, showing empathy, showing concern whenever it concerned American uh, security interests. So. For instance, when the Soviet Union began to unexpectedly collapse very rapidly at the very end in 1991, the administration immediately came up with uh, security initiatives such as unilateral cuts of tactical nuclear weapons and encouraged the Soviets to do the same. So when you read how cautious, how um, you know, um, uh, balanced the administration was, you, uh, you you begin to respect uh, the way they 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 use their intelligence, they use their connections, they use Gor Gorbachev's uh, desire to join the West at the time. But when you know, take a step out of it and ask another question about missed opportunities, uh, could there be something? Let's see, Reagan would have been in power instead of Bush. 
um, more, you know, younger Reagan, more energetic Reagan with the Congress behind him. I would say that uh, such a president uh, could have done more to uh, to uh, find means and find ways to tell the Russian people, listen, you know, you you overthrew communism with you know yourselves. You came to the point when we Americans had always waited since 1945, 47, whatever. And now we extend our hand to you. We offer you, if not a Marshall Plan, something really generous, something really big. Uh, Vladislav, everyone always mentions Marshall Plans. There was only ever one. Everyone, but that was a unique moment. When everyone was- needs Marshall Plans. And when no. anyone brings up a Marshall Plan, it means that you can't fix anything. I mean, because... There no, was no- not, I said the Marshall. I said almost the Marshall Plan, but oh. at that time, actually, a number <laughs> of initiatives were discussed. Well, that's and, a fair point. So maybe almost the Marshall Plan. So almost you, you Marshall present- Plan, and it's, it's more like a political rather than uh, the military statement. Even if you think about the Marshall Plan, right in 48, 47, 48, historians debate whether what was more important: psychology, politics of the Marshall Plan, like the United States would help. Western Europe to rise, or actual dollars. In the case of the Soviet Union, it was the moment when you know millions of Russians, and certainly the majority of the Russian elite, were prepared to join the West and basically become partners and so on and so forth. Um, people like Putin at the time believed strongly in that. So that was, in my view, an opportunity to show a little bit more generosity. What brought the Soviet Union down, Vladislav. You, you know, I guess there's two views. You you wrote the book, uh, uh, a failed empire, and of course there's the argument that the Soviet Union was brought down by uh, the Baltics and the rebellion of the regions, the non-Russian regions of the Soviet Union, and the other narrative that it was brought down by the Russians themselves. How would you? simplify this collapse in political terms was it brought down from out of from the edge or from the center well actually i haven't changed my main argument much you know if you look back to a failed empire which is a book published in 2008 i raised the question there was something enigmatic about the the soviet collapse when you take all those established um explanations why why the collapse happened you know, the Baltic rebellion, the rebellion, basically rebellion of national borderlands. Uh, other explanations like the burden, uh, the military burden, uh, including the challenge of Reagan Star Wars, you know, strategic defensive initiatives and all the rest. You know, if you if you if you take all this, it would have been it's still strange how quick and unexpected was this demise. So uh, in 2008, I was not ready to answer the question what happened. In this book, I, I think I answered this question. It was definitely the combination of a hapless captain, that is Gorbachev himself, who um, fatally destabilized the old system. In fact, you know, macroeconomic stability uh, of, 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 of uh, what, whatever existed by the time he came to power, financial stability was gone within three, four years uh, with human power. And uh, the combination of this, so Gorbachev and his sort of lack of, of of clear direction, and uh, this the the unexpected Russian revolt in the center. So I, yes, I do think the Balts uh, were doing great uh, on the periphery, but it was on the periphery. 
And with the uh, when you say about a, a Russian revolt, was this a uh, an ethnic cultural revolt or a pure political one? It was pure political revolt. I I asked a few individuals at the time, including I think Condoleezza Rice, do you think it was a rebellion of the Russians against uh, as Russians, nationalist ethnic rebellion against the center? And uh, she kind of said, no, it was something else. And I agree with her. All my evidence says. It was this uniqueness of uh, uh, Russians becoming really, really uh, pissed off by the growing economic problems, um, very much the result of Gorbachev's mismanagement of economy and finances. And this uh, was used by uh, those people whom Gorbachev empowered to become sort of, you know, the parallel elite, you know. If you sit in the Kremlin, if you run difficult reforms, okay, you still don't know why they don't work, but you, at least, you know, you, you run it. Uh, but then why do you allow the creation of an opposition that begins immediately to, uh, to challenge you and not only challenge you, but claim that they would pull Russia from under you? And without the cent this central republic that is, you know, four-fifths of the Soviet territory, you know, you become the master of the Kremlin only. <laughs> and even that is questionable because in, uh, I found the documents in August 1990 when Yeltsin meets Gorbachev and they have two rivals, right? And basically says, you know, I need the Kremlin as well. The Kremlin should belong to Russia, not to you, not to the Soviet Union. Nothing should belong to the center, basically. We, we, we'll take it all. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. So, so, so Gorbachev, did he have any grasp, understanding? You've mentioned a couple of times economics. He certainly wasn't an economist. No, um, no. He did was, he, have, he, was. did mm. he have any vision, any understanding of the importance of economics in terms of rebuilding this country? Well, what surprised me, he not only had no knowledge of economy, but he did not create like you know, a higher economic council. He did not empower economists until it was almost too late. He had some excellent economists next to him, and I mentioned one of him, who, who even in retrospect was very good uh, and proposed uh, something that was not as shocking as uh, shock therapy, uh, according to IMF uh, uh, standards, uh, but actually was could have worked. The problem with Gorbachev was that he could not tell what was right and what was wrong, what could work and what was not. That That's understandable. Many politicians just have to trust someone who understands economy better than them. But the point with Gorbachev is that he never trusted anyone in particular, and he never like decided hey, you know, what should I do with economy? He talked to one side, then he turned to the other side and talked. So he kept talking and kept deliberating without making up his mind. In uh, historical terms, of course, Soviet empire collapsed in 1917, two revolutions. Was Yeltsin potentially at least Lenin in terms of rebuilding the system. I mean, Gorbachev was clearly one of the, uh, the post-Tsarist uh, ministers, the princes who had no understanding of history. But did Yeltsin at least offer some potential? 
Yes, Yeltsin was viewed by many as a true Bolshevik, and in terms of uh, using innovation, power. I mean, the Bolsheviks—they they could have—they would have done very well in Silicon Valley these days. Uh, uh, right, right. Well, so in terms of power, Bolsheviks were pretty ruthless and pretty effective, and uh, uh, so Gorbachev was, I think, a fake Leninist in many ways. He admired Lenin, he read Lenin, and then he couldn't act like Lenin because, you know, a beginning with his total aversion to power. This is extraordinary. Right. He was a general... He was uh, too soft. I mean, he grew up in a one-party... He was a prince yeah. of a one-party system, and he had no well, understanding... Well, you know, power. one party or two parties, you need to use power. Yeah. You know, you can have three parties, four parties, but, you know, if if you exist, if you act in a country like the Soviet Union, that, you know, after all those decades of violence, where people basically were bamboozled by decades of you know doing what the leaders wanted to do he suddenly turned to the people and said yeah hey people i will listen to you You have to decide yourself what to do you know you, yeah. you expect it's sort of like liberate the serfs and you expect the serfs immediately to run a super jet you know into the bright future that that never happens uh so you know yeltsin was very different he was a demagogue he understood Russian psyche very well. He understood, for instance, that Russians needed a czar, czar-like figure, someone who is like them, you know, brave, courageous, you know, goes into, you know, uh, you know, uh, swims in icy water, that sort of stuff, drinks, uh, you know, three bottles of vodka in a row. Um, so he, uh, he did all this, you know, he acted as a people czar, essentially. And this is why his phenomenon is so stunning. All of a sudden, people turned away from Gorbachev and followed Yeltsin. Even more stunning was the fact that it's now intellectuals, Moscow intellectuals, who clearly viewed that Yeltsin was of different cloth, that he was actually, you know, a very willful person and capricious person. Why they supported him? Because at that moment, all the intellectuals uh, wrongly believed that once they would uh, get rid of the Communist Party, they would be, get rid of the entire Soviet system, they, they would be one direct shiny road to liberal democracy. And uh, Yeltsin played uh, played along with, with this image. Sounds he, like a bad American political scientist, Vladislav. Who, who was a bad American political scientist? Well, the scientist? idea of everything leading to democracy. Oh, well, you know, if you look back at the time, that was the time when Fukuyama famously proclaimed the end of history and many people... Yeah, but he was on the show. He claims he didn't, but maybe he did. Uh, okay, but, but okay, not him, maybe that millions of others, including, you know, you know, journalists and all the rest of them that suddenly began to cry, yeah, the end of history, democracy, democracy. But it was a zeitgeist. It was at that time. It's easy to criticize this as naive for us today sitting here. Right. Uh, but that was such a moment. And Yeltsin, as we know, Yeltsin converted from uh, from the uh, sort of uh, post-Politburo Bolshevik communist into a Jeffersonian de Democrat during one trip to the United States in, in August, September 1989. So was Yeltsin's big mistake the quote-unquote liberalization of the economy? Had he not done that, could things have worked out quite differently? Well, as, as always with counterfactuals, particularly concerning a giant e economy, it's pointless to talk how it would have turned out. We know how, how it did turn out. It, it, it led to a, a huge recession, many years of recession, uh, absence of money. Basically, he introduced what Liz Truss tried to introduce recently in the UK. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> Mini budget. 
you know, Yeltsin and his uh, his uh, his sort of favorite economist, who was at that time uh, 31, Yegor Gaidar, the extremely young economist, a sort of quartang of, of, of late Soviet history and early Russian history, suggested a mini budget. And they refused to print money so that people, you know, uh, so that Moscow would become a, a Singapore and Hong Kong right, right away. And the result was yeah. calamity, total calamity. But that's, you know, we, 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 uh, we kind of making an road and then to post-Gorbachev era, post-Soviet collapse era. But that was, that was actually uh, important in my, in my book because in the final uh, stages of the collapse and my four, four last chapters of the book, I talk about how uh, Yeltsin already seized initiative and how Yeltsin was acting like basically Liz Truss with, you know, pushing the country into this liberalization, cutting all taxes. The ta nobody paid taxes at the time already probably. And, you know, cutting expenses and uh, expecting that the uh, magic hand of, uh, of capitalism would kind of pick that, that Russian economy. And it did yeah, happen. If I could write a book comparing Boris Yeltsin and Boris Johnson, that'd be an interesting comparison. Maybe, um, maybe, not me. So uh, we, we can't avoid Ukraine, uh, uh, Vladislav. Uh, it's, sadly, it's still in the headlines. Even it more is. in the headlines, a Ukrainian commander today suggested that the world should be worried about uh, the nuclear threat, you even put it on Twitter. Let's end with, uh, you're, a, you're a very good historian, so you never talk about inevitability. But this narrative from Gorbachev to Yeltsin to Putin, um, it all could have been quite different had the Soviet Union fallen differently. Is that, I mean, that's obvious, but, but how would you how do you make sense of Putin in the context of the book you wrote, Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union? Oh, well, the collapse is, is a process when uh, everything you took for granted suddenly no longer exists. It, it was really literally what happened. And people like Putin took it uh, very, very personally. But at the start, you know, when you look at Putin in 1991, 92, and so on and so forth, you think, hey, you know, like many, many others, Putin just realized that the old system was, uh, you know, bankrupt. Uh, you know, Gorbachev made many mistakes um, and you know, we should move on. We should move on. We should accept realities and we should build uh, on these realities something new. Uh, and yes, uh, early, the, the, the younger Putin, he, uh, you know, professed his loyalty to liberal democracy. He served as a bodyguard and assistant to the very liberal, although very nationalistic uh, mayor of uh, St. Petersburg. But then he began to change. And I think the whole, uh, the whole idea of collapse as something that happened um, too suddenly, too traumatically, that in, essentially for many, many people uh, who were Russians, the Soviet Union was Russia, was a bigger Russia. It was their homeland. So um, it, it was not a secret. Actually, I talked after 1991 to a number of intellectuals in Moscow, and they very angrily told me, young man, you know, you don't expect the Russian Federation to exist within its current borders. No, 
I was kind of taken aback. Said, "What do you want? You know, another Yugoslavia, another Yugoslavian war." And they said, "Sooner or later, we have to revisit our borders, and sooner or later, we have to revisit our borders with Ukraine." So it was already clear uh, since the end of 1991, since the time they, you know, the Ukrainian and Russian and, and Belarusian leaders dissolved the Soviet Union, that something uh, terrible uh, might happen. And for a while, uh, maybe in a Pollyannish way, most of us thought, okay, we passed this dangerous moment. You know, Yeltsin papered over all the differences with the first leader of Ukraine, Kravchuk. They divided the Black Sea fleet. They didn't touch uh, the issue of Crimea. That could be explosive. And, and yes, we were Pollyannish in a sense. And those things were not resolved. They were just kicked down the road. And uh, final, ultimately, they did, did explode in, in, in our face. And finally, the, the wisdom of the historian, Vladislav Zubok, the author of Collapse, The Fall of the Soviet Union. What advice would you give the West in terms of now dealing with Putin, dealing with this tragic mess, given your understanding of the fall of the Soviet Union and your understanding of the post-Soviet Union? Well, uh, first is to take uh, to take seriously what uh, damage uh, Putin can do to its own its own country, to Ukraine and Europe, if not the world. The guy does control nuclear weapons, and the guy uh, wants respect. He operates in uh, in this kind of historical bubble where he concluded that the West cheated um, Gorbachev, cheated uh, Yeltsin cheated the Russians in the past. So I, I don't think it, you know, whatever the West does, the West would uh, change his mind. His mind is already set. Um, so I would deal with him as someone, I would say, uh, sick enough, uh, set in, t in, in his own mind. So, but very cautiously, very cautiously. No uh, euphoria, you know, when you hear someone discussing, oh, Ukrainian troops are advancing, it's already the beginning of the collapse of the regime, we'll see another collapse of Russia. I'm not so, uh, I would caution against this, uh, this euphoria and think uh, that, yeah, two times before, two times before Russia did collapse, First time under the Bolsheviks, and it, it created communism, it created fascism, it created the Second uh, World War, and you may say the Cold War as well. So the consequences of the first collapse were pretty calamitous. The second collapse gave us, you know, not only Russian recession uh, and, and, and premature death for millions, but the current mess. So, it, you know, if you... Uh, wish the third collapse of Russia, beware what you wish for. Be more careful. Wise words, wise words of wisdom from Vladislav Zubok, teachers at the London School of Economics. Collapse, the fall of the Soviet Union, one of the three finalists for the Kundhill History Prize will be announced uh, December the 1st. I hope, you, uh, I hope you acknowledge the decision of the judges, Vladislav. Oh, yes, uh, I, I'm not Trump. You're not Trump and you're not Putin, uh, but you've done very well to get to the last three. I think your book definitely deserves serious consideration. So congratulations on that. It's a wonderful book and a most important subject. Uh, we talked so much history. What other books, briefly, would you suggest? Any other book that 
you think is helpful in making sense of today's very complicated world? Well, there are many books uh, that uh, help us. You know, there are more of them will be coming soon, actually, on the war in Ukraine. But um, what two books I would recommend, and they are more for... I, I, won't, I wouldn't expect many people read these books, but they are wonderful. One is written by uh, my colleague, younger colleague, Dina Feinberg. And the title of the book is Cold War Correspondence. It's what uh, journalists sitting in Moscow, American journalists, Canadian journalists sitting in Moscow wrote about the, the Russians, the Soviets, um, and what the Soviet journalists sitting in Washington uh, wrote about America. That's a great book. What's her name? And it's uh, Cold War Correspondence. And I'm sure you'll be surprised how many parallels were between the two. You know, normal binaries didn't really work. I mean, like free press versus repressed mm. media. It, it raises all kinds of questions for us in this, you know, modern age of segmented media and uh, social networks. Really, really wonderful book. Anyway, and uh, another thing uh, I would recommend um, a call, another uh, wonderful colleague of mine, Gulnaz Sharafuddinova, uh, wrote a small uh, book about the afterlife of the Soviet man. She writes essentially about was there this new phenomenon of homo sovieticus? And many today claim that Putin is a homo sovieticus that never could let the Soviet Union go. His mind is Soviet, steeped in Sovietness. And she, she sort of goes through this in, in, a, in a pretty ingenious way. So these are all uh, books by two great specialists, but very useful. Yeah, and uh, probably the, the second one to be read uh, with uh, Richard Reeves' new book, uh, who he's been on the show from Brookings, uh, of Boys and Men, which is the crisis of perhaps post-neoliberal American men. So mm -hmm. lots to read. A lot to read, exactly. A lot to understand.